0: always do it on my own so i gotta get through it and the only thing i know is to love what i'm doing never give up never slow till i finally prove it never listen to the nose I...
1: he who controls the past controls the future he who controls the present controls the past Well everyone, um, unfortunately tonight's episode uh, was a great episode, recorded it, uh, we went about an hour and 10 minutes, and uh, <laughs> then pulled out the flash drive that we use for storage, thinking everything was great, went to go plug it in so that I could upload everything, and uh, it said that the, the file type was unavailable and that I needed to format the flash drive. So long story short, a few hours and 70 bucks later, uh, there's no way to fix the Corrupted Files. Just a complete waste, a uh, real shot to the gonads. Great episode, had Zach back. But I'll, uh, I'll re-record it tomorrow along with the new episode because uh, there was a lot of good stuff to cover. Um, so don't worry about that. But uh, in the meantime, just so you have something tonight because I, I want to put something out every day. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a little sample of the audiobook, so that is what's about to play right after this, but uh, yeah, sorry, Uh, once we get to where we're we're live streaming, then I guess that'll be a fail safe, but in the meantime, uh, sometimes I guess we're just going to get screwed by tech, but anyway, as always, keep a book on your nightstand, read it before you go to bed smarter tomorrow than you are today
0: chapter one introduction even though i am a politics junkie in today's landscape this word rings bittersweet in my ears on one hand i believe that politics the divisions that come with them and the power structures they form have the potential to destroy not just human life but all life on planet earth On the other hand, however, I believe that politics, their ability to allow us to ideologically organise with like-minded people, and their usefulness in solving large-scale societal problems, make them perhaps the greatest tool we as humans have when it comes to fostering the advancement, in all ways, of our species. Of course, people will say that this is just me blowing the importance of politics out of proportion. And I do get that. I mean, after all, it makes sense that someone who has dedicated their life to studying, analysing and publicly commentating on politics would take it a bit more seriously than the average Joe who just wants to earn a paycheck, raise a family and take their boat out on the lake for the weekend. With that said, though, I think that this broadly held mindset of passive political observation is a great travesty and one that actually runs counter to what this great nation is all about. Let me explain. Aristotle, the godfather of political science, once stated that, "...hence it is evident that the state is a creation of nature." and that man is by nature a political animal. And he who by nature and not by mere accident is without a state is either above humanity or below it. He is the tribeless, lawless, hearthless one, whom Homera denounces. The outcast who is a lover of war, he may be compared to a bird which flies alone, If this statement is true, and my understanding of history and human sociology would suggest that it is, then politics is not just for the economic elites, the academics and or the professional analyst class. Rather, it is a fundamental part of our human nature and something that we here in the US, a democratic republic, should all be a part of. Well, unfortunately, in modern American society, politics has instead been framed, by the supposed subject matter experts, as a complicated and far-off thing that the average person need not worry about. And this has led to a growing class of what renowned political scientist Philip E. Converse would call unsophisticated voters. Now. This term, unsophisticated voters, at first glance reinforces the idea that politics is only for the professionals and the elites, or at least that there is a large class of people in our society that have no business being involved in the affair, i.e. most of us are too unsophisticated to understand politics. However, this is not what Converse actually means when he refers to unsophisticated voters. For instance, imagine we are talking about swimming. Put frankly, I know next to nothing about professional swimming. Nonetheless, every four years, I click on the television, go to whatever channel is showing the Olympics, and then passionately root for whomever is representing the United States. I complain when I think something is unfair, decry the entire institution as corrupt when there is a rule or policy that I don't understand, and even start to see the other swimmers as merely my team's opposition. Well, despite this passionate fandom, when it comes to professional swimming, I am unsophisticated. In other words... Even though I am an avid follower of swimming, at the end of the day I am only vaguely familiar with the sport and have not really sought out enough information about it to have a truly valid opinion on its inner workings. In essence, this is how Converse views the casual American voter. This is to say that, like me with swimming, when it comes to politics – the average American is very passionate about their beliefs. However, for the most part, they have not truly taken the time to understand these beliefs. Rather, they have outsourced this task to the experts and or leaders of their respective teams – Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, etc. Now, The reason I say this is a travesty is because one of the things that makes America unique is that, unlike the organisations that control, host swimming competitions, American politics are open to anyone who is a United States citizen. In other words, whether you are a political professional or just a casual observer, at the end of the day, we all have an equal amount of influence when it comes time to vote. Of course, this is a good thing, and I would even go so far as to say that it is one of the main things that sets us apart in a positive way from most of the other countries that we share a planet with. But with that said, with this equality in representation, as with any power, comes responsibility. And this responsibility is one that unsophisticated voters are just not equipped to handle. Therefore, the existence of so many unsophisticated voters, or, if you prefer, passive observers, is unfortunate, because we the people of the United States of America, a country that has the most powerful military, economy, in all of human history, were never supposed to take our ability to participate in politics for granted and we were certainly never supposed to allow that power to be monopolised by only a few select voices. Anyway, to avoid going into a full-on rant, let me just say that, in sum, American politics do in fact matter, and therefore it is each and every one of our responsibility, nay, our constitutional duty to be an active and sophisticated participant in this nation's politics. Because what makes this country unique and special, according to my analyses, is very simple. It is not that we are a Christian nation, it is not that we promote liberal values and or equality, and it is not that we have this amendment or that one. No, What makes this country so special is that our country, the United States of America, constitutionally recognises and enshrines the power of we, the people, over the nation-state. And this means that we are not subjects of a king, loyalists of a monarchy, or slaves to an authoritarian dictator. Rather, it means that we are citizens who consent to be governed, And as citizens who consent to be governed, the founders of this great nation, whatever you may think about them as individuals, have charged us, the people, with the tasks of guiding American politics, and also holding to account those who go against that constitutional power structure. All right, now that you know what my views are about having an active US citizenry, I want to move on to my goals for this book. In essence, my two main goals in this book are to provide the politically unsophisticated with an easy-to-understand overview of a few of the most divisive issues in US politics and, for us, together, to find a sane position on these issues. Now, because I want to remain as objective as possible during this journey – In lieu of using one of the two main political ideologies, conservative, liberal, as a foundation for my sanity, which most political books would do, I will instead be using the United States Constitution to conduct a quality check of each and every position we arrive at. The reason for this is that in our day and age, US politics has for the unsophisticated and sophisticated alike, moved away from the guidance of our founding documents, and instead to a political colosseum wherein everything revolves around one team beating the other team, i.e. Republicans versus Democrats. Well, at least that is how I see it. At any rate, as you will come to find out during this book, I despise both of the major political parties in the United States, and see them both as entities working for their own personal agendas, not we the people. Ergo, instead of using them as my North Star, I will be using the US Constitution, even if it isn't quite as sexy. Now, on the topic of our founding documents, there is something I need to address right off the bat. Look, I get it. Some of you may not like the Constitution, and hell, you may be right, but nonetheless, for right now, the United States Constitution is what we have, and it is quite literally what this entire nation is founded on. So, whether you are, like me, someone who thinks that the US Constitution is the best one of its kind ever to be created, flaws and all, or you are someone who believes the United States Constitution is a bad document, or at least one that we should alter, it doesn't change the fact that if you are an American citizen, the US Constitution is the legal and technical gold standard by which this country should be run. Therefore, like it or not, using this document as the final quality check for my various sane positions is undeniably the most logical thing to do if I wish to remain unbiased toward any one side of the aisle over the other. Moving on, as I suggested a couple of paragraphs ago, the political landscape of this country, in my view and probably yours if you picked up this book, has turned into little more than a sports game wherein each side cares only about beating the other side, not about what is actually right and or constitutional. As a result, when I observe these conflicts between the two sides, I often notice quite a bit of a disconnect. This is to say that much like two ships, one occupied by donkeys and the other by elephants, missing each other in the night, while also shooting cannons wildly into the air at one another, I might add, when members of the two parties interact or debate, they all too often miss the other side's point entirely. I.e. the abortion debate, for instance, generally devolves into one side screaming about how the other side wants to remove women's rights, while the other side screams about how that side wants to kill babies instead of both sides realising that what they are actually arguing about is where does life begin? Now, I cannot say whether or not this type of political participation is the design of a powerful and nefarious force, though I have my suspicions that it is, but I can say with some certainty that it seems unnecessarily divisive and therefore is something I want to remedy. Now, the way I will be approaching this task, remedying this unnecessary divide, that is, is by using what Dr Owen Anderson refers to as a reverse Hegelian dialectic. Of course, I know that many of you will not be familiar with this concept, so let me explain what I mean by reverse Hegelian dialectic first before moving on. Sidenote In the academic community, and more specifically the field of philosophy, there are a lot of different views on what a regular Hegelian dialectic actually is. This is not a book explicitly about philosophy, and therefore I will not be going through all of these positions. I simply want to explain what a Hegelian dialectic is as I have come to understand it. What a reverse Hegelian dialectic is, again, as I have come to understand it, and how I plan to use these tools of thought to find sane positions. End of side note. First described by Enlightenment German philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, the Hegelian dialectic is a mechanism used to arrive at a final truth or conclusion. And Hegel explained this as a process wherein truth is derived through the friction and conflict between one force and its opposite. In other words, a Hegelian dialectic is where two competing ideas, a thesis and an antithesis, clash until they form a new position, the synthesis, which, according to Hegel, is a better solution. Then, this new conclusion which took the best of the prior positions and combined them, will become a new thesis, thus causing a new antithesis to form that opposes it. Then, as you may have guessed, that ensuing conflict will lead to yet another synthesis, and so on and so forth. Then, in theory, this process will repeat over and over again until a final synthesis is revealed which, theoretically, is absolute truth. In lay terms, the Hegelian dialectic is a battle between two extreme positions that will eventually lead to a result that is somewhere in the middle. Then, that middle position will develop an opposing position of its own, and after they battle, a new result in the middle of those two positions will form thus moving us closer to the best conclusion. Make sense? As you can see, the Hegelian dialectic has a lot of potential when it comes to refining or improving ideas. However, despite its usefulness in philosophy, when it comes to politics, I actually believe that the opposite approach is what we need. To explain... During one of his most impactful lectures about the Hegelian dialectic, the aforementioned Dr. Anderson stated, In terms of ultimate truth, would it not be more beneficial to apply a somewhat opposite approach? A reverse Hegelian dialectic, if you will. Now, this statement, at the time, did not seem that significant to me. After all, I was still completing my undergrad and was only taking his course about religion and philosophy in order to fulfil one of my elective requirements. But be that as it may, as I moved into graduate school, wherein independent political research became a much more significant part of my curriculum, it finally hit me that a reverse Hegelian dialectic could be the exact tool we need to remedy some of our country's ideological divisions, which, as I mentioned before, I deem to be largely unnecessary. You see, the issue with the original Hegelian dialectic, at least in terms of politics, is that it, by design, forces the fringes of ideological thought against one another. And if you look through human history, particularly post-human history, this has, in my opinion, resulted in some less-than-ideal final outcomes. Here are just a few examples of this. Thesis – British and French power hegemony after World War I Antithesis – Hitler Synthesis – USA hegemony Endless wars, international conflicts over sovereignty, attempts by China to destabilise the US dollar, etc. Thesis, traditional conservatism. Antithesis, Marxism. Synthesis, globalism. Loss of American self-identity and pride. Large-scale or inefficient international bureaucracies. Unipolar versus a bipolar world, etc. Thesis. US government losing domestic power. Antithesis. 9 11. Synthesis. Patriot Act. NSA spying. Thesis. Feminism. Antithesis. Pickup artists. Men's rights activists. Neo masculinity. Synthesis. Gender theory. Of course, perhaps in a thousand years it will become clear that all of these syntheses have been a net positive for humanity. But at this point it seems to me that each of these syntheses has resulted in, or at least exasperated, the large scale ideological divisions that exist within our species. And this is especially true in the Western world, and more specifically the United States. Case in point, whether we are looking at discretionary spending, foreign policy, or how to help underperforming communities, from my viewpoint, and likely yours, the US is more ideologically divided than ever. Now, I know this language may make you roll your eyes because you have heard it so often alongside fear-mongering reports of impending civil war and a potential national divorce, but the truth is that the ideological fracturing we have seen in our country over the last fifteen or so years is actually much more serious than any revolution and or civil war style conflict that may or may not happen. This is because, unlike kids on a playground who have it out in a physically violent conflict, only to become friends later on, because after all they are part of the same school, same class, and same in-group, our civilization is under the false assumption that we are, at a foundational level, members of many different in-groups, i.e., Republican, Democrat, person of color, gender queer conservative, social-liberal, etc. All of which end up being boiled down into one of two political ideologies that are nothing alike. Ergo, where the kids on the playground will wipe the blood from their noses and become friends, or at the very least become civil enough through mutual respect to stay the hell out of each other's way and coexist, the US population has chosen to not even confront the other side as humans, much less fellow Americans. In other words, we have tossed one another aside as garbage for the sin of disagreeing because, through our lazy deductive reasoning, we have established ourselves as morally superior to all those who have different beliefs than us. And when we do this, Divide everyone in the population into either a friend or foe, based on their personal politics, that is. We set a dangerous precedent of making our fellow Americans either good or evil, even though we are all technically still part of the same in-group. United States citizens living under the guidance and direction of the US Constitution. I.e., If my fellow man is in opposition to myself, then he is not, in fact, my fellow man, but rather the antithesis to morality and therefore my enemy. Get it? Anyway, when it comes to solving this division, you may be wondering where a reverse Hegelian dialectic fits in. Well, but plainly, instead of pitting the prominent political ideologies against one another until I find a new conclusion for each issue, what I want to do in this book is to take some of the most controversial ideological issues in American politics and investigate them until I actually get back to the original point of disagreement. In other words, Instead of finding new, more advanced answers to our political strife, I want to trace things back to where the two major American political ideologies actually disagreed in the first place. Now, the logic behind using the reverse Hegelian dialectic is that it should allow me, and you as well, to better understand the root of our national disagreements. This is to say that instead of trying to move farther away from any two positions in an attempt to find an altogether new starting point, I seek to study the debates surrounding the issues in this book in order to refine a synthesis that draws on the strengths of both sides with the goal being to find a sane and reasonable position. And my hope is that by doing this, finding the point for each issue in which the left and right sides of the aisle split ways, that is, is that I can establish a new, constitutionally grounded position that we can all at least somewhat agree on. Ergo, when it is all said and done, this book, that is, I hope that this work actually helps us move forward as a nation toward more prosperous and sensible ideological positions. Positions, I might add, that we the people can force our elected leaders to respect and listen to through the imposing of our constitutionally established political power and influence. So, that is where the reverse Hegelian dialectic fits in. Basically, it will allow us to figure out where both sides... went crazy. Alright, moving on. Now that you know what my goals are for this book, as well as how I aim to accomplish them, I need to address just two things before moving on to the first issue. First off, most of us these days, me included, have short attention spans. Because of this, I have tried to avoid getting too long-winded whilst analysing the various issues I bring up in this book. As a result, you may notice that some of the chapters are very short, only a couple of pages, while others are more complex ones, and in some cases, rather long. So just know that my desire to get all of this information out there succinctly is the reason that the chapter lengths vary so much. And try not to let it bother you. Furthermore, if you do find that some of the chapters are not long enough for your taste, well, then I would advise you go through the references section for those chapters and use the sources to conduct your own follow-on research. Good to go? Second, I'm not going to delve too far into race relations and gender equality in this book – even though they will come up from time to time. The reason for this is simple. You see, the constitutional position on these topics is that all people are created equal and should be afforded equal rights. Now, as a country, we have not always lived up to that. But in our current day and age, people are so against those past mistakes that they are actually trying to go the other direction in an attempt to get revenge for those past injustices. So, put plainly, those who discriminate against others in the past based on race and gender were wrong, and people discriminating against groups today in order to make up for that past are also wrong. In other words, the same position on these issues is rather self-evident. Don't judge people and or treat them better or worse than any other group of people based on their immutable characteristics. Got it? Side note, if you disagree with that position on race and gender and you instead think that certain groups are lesser and or deserve fewer rights or that certain groups deserve special treatment to counteract the beliefs of those people, then your position is counter to the equality spoken of in our constitution, and your position, in my view, is quite flawed. Ergo, if you are for any type of race, gender-based discrimination, even discrimination against white people, your position is, put frankly, insane. capiche? Sweet. Then, moving forward, let that be all there is to say on the topic. End of side note. Well folks, that is the end of this introduction. In closing, I want to be clear that I do not want this book to turn into a tool for any particular side of the partisan spectrum to whack the other one with. In fact, My goal is for it to help us get past the partisanship hackery I see in most publicised political debates altogether, because I truly believe that if we are to improve the political landscape of the United States, which is supposed to be the beacon for individual liberty that shines across the world, we, as an active citizenry, must find some unity and or specific points of agreement that are rooted in something stronger than a political team and or political identity. So, no, I do not want people to cherry-pick chapters so that they can beat the other side while ignoring the rest of the book. Instead, I hope that this book simply helps we, the people of the United States of America, find more sane and constitutional ways to pull the levers of american political power all right with all of that said let's begin we got to
1: we got to we got to